Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Boy in a Churchyard by Mark Zonakis, a singer-songwriter from Columbus. Mark is our feature Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and researcher, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, what do you remember about the Collinwood School Fire? Not a lot of details. It was about 100 years ago, right? And I know it was awful. Something like 100 kids died. But because they couldn't get out of the building, right? Yeah, well, 172 children, two teachers, one rescuer. It was the worst school fire in American history. That's crazy. That's almost incomprehensible. I'm trying to imagine 172 little bodies lined up at a morgue. What universal pain Collinwood must have been going through. Truly. It's a horror that is almost beyond words. What started it? Well, that's what makes it an Ohio mystery. I've seen at least three theories. And an investigation was done and offered its best guess. But it's only a guess. We really don't know. Before we discuss the possible causes, though, we need to tell you the story. And it's as tragic as any story we've ever told. We're going back to March 4th, 1908, a typical winter day in Northeast Ohio, and a typical start to the school day at Lakeview Elementary on East 152nd Street in Collinwood. Collinwood is part of Cleveland today, but back then it was its own village. About 8,000 souls called it home most of them blue-collar families who worked at the local rail yards or in the various smokestack industries. Many of those served by the neighborhood school lived within walking distance of it. The building was constructed in 1901, and its three-story brick edifice certainly seemed to be a sturdy structure, but its imposing appearance was an illusion, as those inside were about to find out. The day started off with the arrival of custodian Fritz Herder. He was a father of eight. Four of his children attended the school. Each day, he was the first out of the house. At 6 a.m., he would walk the short block from his home to the school to get things ready. He would stoke the basement furnace with coal, 
clean the classrooms, sweep the hallways, and at 8 a.m., he would open the doors to the waiting students. On March the 4th, there were about 325 students in attendance between the ages of 5 and 15. As the children settled into their desks and classes began, the custodian returned to the basement. A website called AmericanHauntingsInc.com found this description of what happened next as provided by Fritz Herder himself. I was sweeping in the basement when I looked up and saw a wisp of smoke curling out from beneath the front stairway. I ran to the fire alarm and pulled the gong that sounded the alarm throughout the building. Then I ran to the front and then to the rear doors. Now, unfortunately, when Fritz opened the front doors, air rushed through the school, fanning the flames. Herder recalled running to a nearby classroom where his five-year-old daughter Ida was, shouting for her and her classmates to leave immediately. But the next moments, he said, were a blur. I cannot remember what happened next, except that I saw the flames shooting all about and the little children running down through them, screaming. Some fell at the rear entrance and others stumbled over them. I saw my own little Helena among them. I tried to pull her out, but the flames drove me back. I had to leave my little child to die. At first, some of the classes didn't panic at the fire alarm, thinking it must be a drill. When they heard the loud gong that Herder had set off, they did what they'd practiced before. They lined up with their teachers and headed for the stairs toward the front door. Their fire drills always had them exiting the front doors. But when they saw the flames blocking their way, order turned to chaos. One teacher, Catherine Weiler, did her best to try and calm her second graders. She was leading a procession of 39 of them. Ms. Weiler was the 25-year-old daughter of a German Methodist minister, raised to be firm but caring, and a commanding figure at all of six feet tall. When she and her pupils realized they couldn't leave through the front doors, her students, like so many others, instinctively turned and fled toward the rear door down another stairwell. But all those little ones, from her class and others, running down the same stairwell at the same time only served to wedge them into the narrow staircase. Faced with a wall of flesh, Later arriving children began climbing over the pile, but that only filled the space even tighter. Catherine Weiler tried desperately to pull the children free, but in the midst of this effort, she lost her footing and was trampled beneath the struggling mound of humanity. Hearing the alarm, Collinwood Chief of Police Charles McElrath was among the first to arrive. He had three of his own children in the school, but he remained composed and took charge, directing everyone who was responding to the alarm. Among them were the men from the Lakeshore Rail Yard, who had been working when they were told to drop their tools and race to the school. Firefighters were among the last to arrive. The Collinwood Fire Department was made up of mostly inexperienced volunteers. 
The horses that pulled their fire engine had to be rounded up from their pastures. When they got to the scene, their ladders couldn't reach the third story, and the water stream from their old fire hoses couldn't even reach the second floor. Leaks in the line were stopping them from building up enough water pressure. They'd also forgotten to load the axe, which would have aided in breaking open new exits. The firefighters were outmatched by the inferno. By now, hundreds of frantic parents were on hand. Mrs. Walter Kelly had two kids at Lakeview. She heard the alarm from her home and ran to the school. When she arrived, only one of the two facing doors at the back exit was open. She and another man tried frantically to open the other side to make more room for children to escape, but it was locked and wouldn't budge. When that failed, she started smashing windows and pulling a handful of children through the broken glass, but none of the children were hers. Hers would not make it out alive. Mrs. Clark Sprung saw the fire from her home right across the street and made a dash to the school where her seven-year-old son Alvon attended second grade. Incredibly, she spotted him in a first-floor window. She couldn't reach him, and she must have thought she had time because she rushed back across the street, fetched a ladder, and returned to where he was waiting. She climbed up and reached out for him, catching him by the hair. But his hair burned off in her hands, and the boy fell back into the flames. On the third floor, teacher Laura Bodie started her pupils down the stairs. But when the flames blocked them, they returned to the third floor. She broke out a window with a chair, climbed onto a fire escape, and began sending her children down as fast as they could go. Most made it, but four or five children, perhaps frightened by the height or the jump that they would need to take from the bottom of the fire escape, broke from the line and ran back inside where they perished. Many children were jumping from upper floor windows. Some survived, many did not. Nine-year-old Niles Thompson took the leap from a second floor window and he made it. He frantically ran among the classmates assembled outside, looking for his little brother Thomas. When he couldn't find Thomas, he ran back inside to try and get him. They both died. Little Marie Whitman had luck on her side. The little girl ran through the smoke-filled halls till she found her little brother, then managed to drag him to a window from which they both leapt and lived. Fritz Herder, the custodian, stayed in the building, tossing children from the windows. He fled the building shortly before the interior collapsed. Two of Police Chief McAlrath's children made it out, seven-year-old Benson and nine-year-old Viola May, whose hair had been completely burned off. But his oldest son, ten-year-old Hugh, didn't make it. Witnesses said Hugh was helping a number of children down a fire escape. When some thought the jump to the grass was too long, they ran back into the building. Hugh ran after them and disappeared behind a wall of smoke from which he never returned. Throughout all of this, people were continuing to work at getting both sides of the rear door to open. And when they finally did, 
A tangle of children fell through the opening. Rescuers tried pulling individuals from the pile, but couldn't free many of them before the entire opening was engulfed in flames. The rescuers were forced to watch as the children were overtaken. At the front door, rescuers found another horrifying scene, a wall of children who tried to make it through. Almost all were dead, but not all. Wallace Upton saw his 10-year-old daughter at the bottom of the pile, and while she was burned, she was still alive. He fought to pull her free, but couldn't budge her. The flames were burning his own clothes away. People saw the hopelessness of it and tried to pull him back, but he fought to stay near his girl until it was clear she was dead. Then he lingered on the school grounds for hours, dazed and refusing medical attention. Mrs. John Phyllis had found her 15-year-old daughter, Jenny, wedged into the pile at the rear stairwell. She tugged at her, Oh, Jenny, please come out, she begged as she pulled. Jenny could only look at her and say, It's no use, Ma. I've got to die. Mrs. Phyllis and her daughter became resigned to her fate. The mother stayed with Jenny and held her hands. They talked for some minutes as the fire got closer. One flame licked at Jenny's hair, and Mrs. Phyllis stroked the daughter's hair to put it out. Oh, thank you, Ma, Jenny said. It was her last words. The fire roared forward. Neighbors pulled Mrs. Phyllis away. Reportedly, her hand was burned to a stump. Twelve-year-old Glenn Sanderson died in full view of a large crowd. I'm not sure how this was so visible, but news reports said witnesses watched him on the third floor, where there was a school auditorium with a number of pieces of scenery. As the Holocaust worked its way toward him, he swung from one piece of scenery to another, trying to reach a fire escape. He made it halfway across the stage when he lost his grasp and fell into the inferno. In hindsight, Lakeview Elementary was a fire trap. The exterior was masonry, but the interior was all wood. Its stairways served as a huge chimney. As soon as doors and windows were open, the air sucked the flames upward. It took less than an hour for all three floors of the school to become engulfed, the roof incinerated, and the interior fully collapsed into the basement, leaving only the four exterior brick walls standing. Part of the tragic design was in the fact that there were only two first-floor exits— Investigators believed the fire started in the basement just beneath the staircase at the front door. That meant the double doors in the back, one of which was locked, were the only means of escape, with nearly 350 people racing for it at the same time. There was a rumor after the fire that has lingered into modern times. A deputy state fire marshal had told a reporter the doors only opened inward and that the students were trapped because in their panic they pushed against the door and couldn't back up enough to open it. This was wrong. The doors opened outward. The problem was getting to the doors. As I said, fire blocked the front and most of the children couldn't reach the rear because they'd become wedged into the stairwell.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Once the flames were extinguished, the smoking embers had to be watered down to make retrieval possible for the recovery teams. Then came the gruesome task of pulling the remains from the gutted school building. Firefighters and railroad workers formed a line, passing the human remains down to stretchers, then off to a dozen waiting ambulance wagons that took them to a nearby railroad shop. There were few bodies, mostly just limbs and torsos. At the makeshift morgue, parents were brought in ten at a time to see if they could identify anything. Parents wailed or passed out as they recognized a shoe or a piece of cloth as belonging to their loved one. Fifteen-year-old Irene Davis was identified when her little sister pointed out a fragment of her skirt. The final count was incomprehensible. 172 children, two teachers, Catherine Weiler and Grace Fisk, and a rescuer. John Krajniak was one of the first responders. He was last seen running into the building, and nobody realized he'd never run back out until his body was pulled from the rubble. The funerals began Friday, March the 6th, the first being held for Alma Gilbert, a 10-year-old girl who was one of the first recovered from the ruins. For the next three days, the funerals averaged four every hour, sunrise to sunset. There were not enough funeral carriages available for the task, so many families used wagons and even transported their small white coffins by streetcar to the various cemeteries and churchyards. The last of the children were buried during a snowstorm that Sunday. The Cleveland Plain Dealer wrote, The village seemed to be one vast procession of hearses and carriages. Scarcely did one funeral carriage pass before another came into sight, wending its way with its sorrowful burden to the burying grounds. Those who had no dead to mourn stood on the streets, watching the grim procession as they passed. There was scarcely a dry eye in Collinwood. Every house that lost a child had a white ribbon on their door. The city council authorized funds to bury the unidentified. There were 19 of them. On the Monday after the fire, six Protestant and two Catholic churches in Collinwood took on the role of holding services for each of them, and a public ceremony was held at Lakeview Cemetery. Thousands attended. Each of the unidentified received a marker bearing a number, and a registry kept track of what little could be described, like a ring or a scrap of cloth. Classmates of the dead served as pallbearers, carrying the white caskets to an elaborate floral arch. Chopin's funeral march played. Businesses all over town closed for the day. 
The Collinwood Board of Trade and the Town Council each approved $5,000 to help the families that had no means to bury their dead. Collinwood was a working-class town, and the nation was in the midst of a recession. Social workers canvassed the grieving families and found many destitute. Thousands of dollars' worth of coal and groceries were distributed. Now, the problem with fire is that oftentimes it destroys the very clue as to how it got started. As investigators tried to piece together the puzzle from the rubble, whispers and rumors rumbled among the townspeople and grieving parents. With no evidence at all, the blame was first laid at the doorstep of Fritz Herder, the school's custodian, and the one adult with access to fire. They assumed that, since he tended the furnace, he must be to blame. The day of the fire, nearly 500 people gathered outside his home. Police were called to protect him. On the second day, when the Herder family emerged from the house with three small coffins bearing the remains of his own children, hearts softened. He'd lost Ida, Helena, and his son Walter. Other theories circulated. One was the girls had once been caught smoking in a basement closet near flammable materials. Were they down there that morning? Then a third theory. The coroner, T.A. Burke, held an inquest, and the state deputy fire marshal suggested it could have been a design flaw. Heating pipes ran just inches from wooden joists. The overworked furnace could have ignited the exposed dry wood in the boiler room. In the end, because no cause could be certain, no blame was leveled. The inquest found no one legally accountable. Many parents condemned the report, the speed at which it was issued, and its failure to hold the school board, the architects, the custodian, or anyone responsible. J.H. Morgan, Ohio's chief inspector of public buildings, said in his report to the governor, the cause of the fire cannot be determined. Many believe it originated from the heating system or the boilers, but proof has been offered to the contrary. Not surprisingly, the Collinwood fire affected school districts, actually public buildings of all kinds and all over the country, Cleveland began to install iron staircases, concrete floors, fireproof coverings for pipes. They moved doors to make sure they were unobstructed and in a direct and open route to the staircase. State laws were passed everywhere requiring enclosed stairwells and special door latches. And due to that early and incorrect rumor that persisted about the school's doors not opening outward, Communities reviewed their own doors and corrected that issue where needed. Other things that needed done did not come about so easily. Collinwood needed a new school. Because of the recession and tight budgets, the school board made plans to build it on the site of the old. Grieving parents were horrified, some even filing lawsuits to prevent it. Families couldn't imagine the idea of sending younger brothers and sisters to the school grounds that contained ashes of their siblings. 
One parent, Robert School, whose son Edward had died in the fire, said, If the board persists in building on the old site, the people of North Collinwood will call upon it with shotguns. But a school had to be built, and a compromise was found. The new building, which was called Memorial Elementary, would be built on the adjacent lot. To ease the cost to the local school district, the state of Ohio bought the lot where the original foundation was, and two years after the fire, in 1910, it was turned into a memorial park featuring gardens, fountains, and gravel walkways. The new school was built to be as fireproof as possible. It was only two stories high, and each of the 14 classrooms had direct access to an outside exit. Two other significant things happened in 1910. On October 22nd, a large memorial to the Collinwood Fire's victims was dedicated at Lakeview Cemetery. It was funded, in part, by a movement that asked children in the Cleveland area to donate one penny. Soon, envelopes containing pennies started arriving from schools all over the country. 1910 was also the year that Collinwood voted to merge with Cleveland. The village was no more. The custodian, Fritz Herder, continued working for the school system until he retired at the age of 70. He rarely spoke of the fire and passed away at the age of 96. The last survivor of the fire died in 1991. He was 90-year-old John Barbic had been a second grader, the child of Austro-Hungarian immigrants who had settled in Collinwood when he was just seven. His teacher had been able to lead her students out the front door before flames blocked others from exiting that way. The new Memorial Elementary served Cleveland for 60 years before it was closed in 1970. It remained abandoned for decades and was demolished in 2004. I keep thinking to that moment where the mother's holding the child's hand and talking to her through the flames. I mean, I think I'm just going to go home and hug my kids tonight. You know, I teared up a few times writing this one. Those parents, I bet there wasn't a day the rest of their lives they didn't think of what they'd seen. I mean, all I did was read about it, and I don't think I've had a day since I've done that research that I haven't thought about it. Oh. Oh, Collinwood, that was named after that guy we did an episode on, right? Yeah, good point. Collinwood was named for Charles Collins. He was a train bridge designer, and he has his own Ohio mystery story because of his own mysterious death following a massive train tragedy in Ashtabula. If you go to ohiomysteries.com, click on the episode list, just scroll down to episode 26, and you'll be able to continue your education of all things related to Collinwood. And that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Now, more about our featured Ohio musical artist of the night. Mark Zanakis is a folk music artist born and raised in Columbus. His music is soothing and soulful and touches the heart with a unique style and dreamlike soundscapes. He has released three studio albums, including one this past fall called My Heart. 
My heart is the single off that one and worth finding and listening to, but we picked to share with you Boy in a Churchyard. I just love the vibe with the mixture of his guitar and harmonica. Now, if you're in the area of Franklin and Fairfield counties, you can watch Mark perform in person at Combustion Brewery. That's in Pickerington on December the 10th. Go check him out. So here's another version of Boy in a Churchyard by Mark Zonakis. Turn up the volume, enjoy, and we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. There's a boy in a churchyard Shaking his soul today There's a boy in a churchyard Shaking his soul today Hear the voices come from Memphis Hear them all, Mr. Train There's a boy with a guitar Strumming in D-Mars away There's a boy with a guitar Strumming in D-Mars away People call him crazy Mama said just wait another day There's a boy in a junkyard Greasing his hair today There's a boy in a junkyard Greasing his hair today Blue sweats and velvet get on that southern train
The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.